The first scripture reading comes to us from Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen now for what God says to us. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of God, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for God has a controversy with God's people, and God will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of God. With what shall I come before God and bow my head before God on high? Shall I come before God with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will God be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? God has told you, immortal, what is good, and what does God require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before beginning a sermon about justice this morning, it seems important to acknowledge the events that have been unfolding in Memphis the last few days. Uh, my sermon will offer the perspective that the pursuit of justice from a Christian perspective should leave open the possibility for redemption and that justice should be sought by means of the virtues Jesus offers in the Beatitudes virtues like mercy, humility, and peacemaking. But I am aware that such a message can sound disingenuous or hollow in the immediate painful aftermath of an incident like the death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of police. So I want to stress, as I hope will be clear in my sermon, that justice must first be established before redemption can unfold. Justice is the first order of business in the process of reconciliation. And nothing that we say about mercy, humility, and peacemaking should lessen our sense of urgency for justice to be established. So bearing that in mind, let's now turn to the second scripture lesson today from the lectionary. The gospel lesson comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This section known as the Beatitudes. I invite you once again to listen for the word of the Lord. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What's the right thing to do? It's a big question that even the most moderately reflective people among us ask themselves all the time, right? As we go about life, what's the right thing to do? Should I confront my spouse who treated me unfairly, though I know they've had a tough day at work? Should I provide assistance to a person asking for my help, though I've helped them before and nothing changed? Should I buy a certain product at a cheaper price, though I know it was unethically sourced? What's the right thing to do? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ in the world requires deep ethical reflection on what it means to do the right thing. Sometimes it's obvious what the right thing is to do, and so discipleship becomes a matter of acting courageously, sacrificially, or resolutely. But other times it's not immediately obvious in a given situation what the right thing to do must be. And in these more complicated circumstances, we should prayerfully engage the teachings of our Lord in a very deep way. The largest section of Jesus' ethical teachings in the Gospels is the Sermon on the Mount, which spans three early chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. And the preamble, or introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, is known as the Beatitudes. And it is these blessing statements, which we read a moment ago, which offer a framework in which to understand what it means to do the right thing. Jesus doesn't reinvent the wheel with his ethical teachings. Instead, he reinforces and even intensifies the moral dimensions of the Old Testament. For the Hebrew prophets, the notions of justice and righteousness were foundational for knowing what it means to do the right thing. Justice and righteousness together comprise one of the most common word pairs in the Old Testament. They so often appear side by side. Justice means fairness, and righteousness means right relationship with God and with others. Right relationships are possible only when justice is first established. The prophet Micah's injunction to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God is a nice, succinct summary of the heart of the Bible's prophetic material. The prophetic voice in the Bible arose as Israel's kings grew in power and served as a kind of check 
against the unfair leveraging of that power against the poor and vulnerable. A certain degree of power is necessary, after all, to be confronted with a choice whether to act with justice or injustice, choice of what it means to do the right thing. The Harvard political philosopher Michael Sandel offers a series of scenarios that illustrate the sometimes complicated nature of doing the right thing. Join me in some of his thought experiments for a moment. Suppose you were on a runaway train car barreling toward five rail workers and you're bound to crash into them at any moment. As you approach, you notice a juncture in the track that enables you to veer off to the right onto a different track where only one rail worker is standing. All you have to do is flip a switch and you'll hang a right. What's the right thing to do? Should you steer the car to the right and run into one person so as to spare the other five? Most people answer that it's better to kill one person than five, so it's better to veer off to the right. But now suppose that the situation were slightly different. This time you're standing on a bridge overlooking a runaway train car barreling toward five rail workers. And you notice a man standing on the bridge right over the tracks. You realize that if you were to shove the man off the bridge, he would land in front of the train and stop it from crashing into the five rail workers. What's the right thing to do? Would you push the man off the bridge? I won't take hands. Most people answer in this scenario that they would not, though the end result would be the same, right? In that one person would die to prevent five others from dying. Now suppose that you are a doctor in an understaffed emergency room and six people arrive in desperate need of care. Perhaps they'd been in a rail car accident. If you care for the most injured person, it will require your full ongoing attention and the other five people will surely die. Meanwhile, the other five people are in good enough condition that you could care for all five of them at once, while only the most injured person would die. What's the right thing to do? Who should you care for? Again, most people say that you should care for the five and sacrifice the one. But now suppose that each of those injured requires an organ transplant in order to be saved. One requires a kidney, another a liver, another a heart, another lungs, and another a pancreas. Unfortunately, there's no organs available for transplant. However, you know that in the next room over, there's a perfectly healthy man visiting the doctor for a routine checkup. And conveniently, he's taking a nap. <laughs> What's the right thing to do? Surely you wouldn't harvest the healthy man's organs in order to save the others, would you? But again, you could save five by sacrificing one. Sandel's point is that the notion of justice confronts us with complicated ethical questions, right? 
And as we consider these questions, we discover that certain principles lie beneath the judgments we make. Principles which guide the way we think about what it means to do the right thing. And a close examination of those principles we hold reveals why we make the decisions we make. When thinking about justice, some people emphasize the importance of ends over means. What makes an action the right thing to do is its end result, however that might come about. Saving five people at the expense of one person, for example, is the desired result in the situations I've outlined. It's an end that may justify certain means. But other people consider the means to be as important, if not more important, than the ends. While it may be more desirable to save five people than one person, you cannot shove a person in front of an oncoming train in order to do so, nor can you harvest someone's organs without their consent. Such means do not justify their ends because there is something inherently wrong and objectionable something inherently unjust about such actions, such means. So, ethical reflection requires us to ask, which ends justify which means? The end is the goal, the ideal result, justice. But the means is where the tension really lies, right? The means is where big questions are asked of us, the means is where we're confronted with that question, what's the right thing to do? It seems to me that justice is established not only when the right end is established, but also and only when it is established by the right means. Now, the question is complicated enough from the philosophical points of view we've discussed. But it becomes more complicated still when we approach the question of justice from a theological point of view. Because theologically, the right thing to do is not merely a matter of fairness. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is fair, after all. It's about as fair as fair can be. But Jesus asks much more of us in the Sermon on the Mount, than merely to maintain a retributive kind of justice. Two wrongs don't make a right, after all. Jesus says that instead, his disciples are to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. A much higher bar. We might think of the Beatitudes as Jesus' teaching on the means by which to pursue the end of justice. Perhaps the Beatitudes offer us the principles that should inform the judgments we make. Throughout the Beatitudes, Jesus adds layer after layer to the considerations with which his disciples should decide what the right thing is to do. He adds the concepts of mercy and humility, for instance, which are also present in Micah's teaching. He adds the concept of purity of heart, which rebukes our desire to get even 
our desire for revenge. And he calls for the sort of justice that ultimately leads to peace. And peacemaking surely requires a degree of sacrifice. It may even be unfair. I can imagine some circumstances in which justice conceived merely as fairness would actually be in conflict with mercy. Because after all, fairness is getting what you deserve, right? And mercy is getting what you don't deserve. Jesus' ethic goes beyond mere notions of fairness to a justice that transforms the world and ushers in the kingdom of God. In Victor Hugo's French historical novel, Les Miserables, a peasant named Jean Valjean is released from prison and taken in by a bishop who provides him with food and shelter for the night. In the middle of the night, Valjean runs away and takes the bishop's valuable silverware with him. Police capture Valjean and take him back to the bishop, and it seems that justice will be served. The bishop will have his silver returned, and the peasant will return to prison. Certainly from the perspective of justice as fairness, returning the silver to the bishop and sending Valjean back to prison would be the right thing to do. But the bishop decides instead to embody Jesus' ethics in the Beatitudes, to act with mercy and humility and to be a peacemaker. The bishop pretends he had given Valjean the silver and even hands over two candlesticks to him as though he had forgotten to take them with him the first time. The police release Valjean and leave, and the bishop tells him to use the silver and candlesticks to make an honest man out of himself. The bishop's justice goes beyond mere fairness and exhibits mercy and humility as the means by which to pursue a just, redemptive resolution. Now, Jesus' ethic of merciful justice isn't a matter of letting people off the hook. It's not a matter of excusing the inexcusable. Sometimes that's not what's best for people. Sometimes that enables them. Mercy cannot be a guise for injustice. Sometimes accountability is required to establish justice. And certainly it's not for the powerful to tell the victims of injustice to ignore the wrongs that have been perpetrated against them. But at other times, when people come to the end of their rope and have nowhere else to run, when remorse is genuine and an apology sincere, then mercy and peacemaking offer a better theological approach to justice than mere fairness. Mercy and peacemaking become the right thing to do for those who follow Jesus, the right means to the end of establishing God's justice. So to summarize, we might say that from a Christian perspective, the pursuit of justice should uphold the possibility of redemption. Justice were simply a matter of setting the record straight. It would be a whole lot more straightforward. Fair is fair, and fair is easy. A person knocks out your eye and your tooth, you knock out their eye and their tooth, and you both wander around with your one-eyed search for dentures. 
but mercy and peacemaking create redemptive possibility within the sphere of justice. A possibility that is unwilling to give up on someone even after justice has been won. Injustice must be corrected, justice must be established, and then redemption pursued. So what's the right thing to do? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Thanks be to God. Amen.